All right, turn in your Bible to Isaiah. Isaiah 7. It can be found on page 571 in the Pew Bible. 571 in the Pew Bible. I'll be reading this text as we go. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask now that you would prepare our hearts to receive your word. That we'd reflect upon these words. That it would increase our love for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. As we begin this Advent series, we're going to look at the cast of Christmas, the, the characters in the Christmas story. Now, I'm not going to be able to unpack all of them for you, but we'll highlight several, several throughout this Advent season. Next week, we'll, Lord willing, we'll look at Mary, we'll look at the angels and shepherds, Jesus, and then the wise men. We'll conclude at the end of December with the wise men. Again, Lord willing, because we don't know what he'll give us with the weather. This morning, we're going to zoom in on the prophets as they waited for and anticipated the coming of the Messiah. Some of the most exciting and memorable moments are full of waiting. Have you ever noticed that? Some of the most exciting and memorable moments of one's life are full of waiting. Waiting for marriage. Waiting for children to be born. Waiting for vacation. This year, our farmers waiting for harvest. Waiting for the end of the school year. Waiting for Christmas morning and opening up those Christmas presents under the tree. Waiting for the Thanksgiving meal. Just can't wait till it's done so I can eat this delicious meal. Waiting in line on Black Friday for great deals. Although I hear this year, and probably years past, but the line isn't as long, so there's not as much waiting because everyone's shopping online nowadays. Our lives are filled with waiting and preparation. Waiting, in fact, is a part of preparation. It it teaches us about control and how little of it we actually have. And sometimes it seems like we spend more time waiting and preparing than actually doing the thing which we're waiting and preparing for. Waiting also helps us understand the value of the object or event for which we are waiting This morning, we get a glimpse of what the prophets waited for and how they waited for the arrival of the Lord. And as we concluded our series in Malachi last week, the prophet was waiting for the arrival of God's messenger and the coming of the Lord. God's people were waiting for the promises of God to be realized. In Matthew 13, 17, Jesus proclaims that many prophets and righteous people longed to see his arrival. The prophets didn't see it, but they they prepared us for it. They had certain expectations, and they lived in a time of waiting and anticipation. 
And, event, and, and even for us spiritually, right? Our, our time here on earth is preparing us for heaven. It is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So, as we consider the prophets this morning, we recognize that they teach us about preparation, they teach us about waiting, and they reveal what they are waiting for, and they teach us how to prepare for the arrival of the Lord. And that's what I want to focus on this morning. I want to, I want to highlight two truths concerning what the prophets waited for and anticipated and expected and prepared for. And then as we apply it, how? How they waited, how they prepare us. How were they prepared for the coming of the Lord? So first, you can see this in your outline. Consider with me the, the promise of Emmanuel, the promise of Emmanuel. We see this in, in Isaiah 7. We've looked at this passage in the past in, in, in some detail. So what I want to do this morning is, is again, highlight the, the context and the events that were surrounding the situation in Israel. Because in order to fully appreciate and understand Isaiah 7.14, this great passage, this great promise, it helps to understand the context. You recall that God had delivered Israel out of Egypt. They make their way to the promised land. For 40 years, they spend in the, their time in the wilderness. They make their way to the promised land under Joshua. And then during the time of the judges, there, there's no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so then finally, they, they demand a king. The people of Israel choose Saul to be their king. He's the right guy. That's the one we want. But God's choice is David. David becomes the next king, a man after God's heart, and after him, Solomon. And now we're at the, we're at the peak, we're at the peak of history for Israel. It, it seems that God's blessings to the nations is about to be realized and come to pass. God's people are living in God's place under God's rule. The temple has been built Nations are beginning to stream in. The Queen of Sheba, the nations are streaming in. This was around 1000 BC. And then Solomon disobeys, doesn't he? And the decline of the kings follows. The kingdom of Israel is then divided into two kingdoms the northern tribes and the, and the southern tribe of Judah. Israel, the, the northern tribes, will go into exile and be captured by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. In the context of Isaiah, the time is around 735 B.C. Ahaz is the king of Judah. Syria and Israel, the, the nations from the north, they came to Jerusalem to wage war. They, they want to attack. They want to attack Judah. We're not exactly sure Why? It's possible they're attempting to force Judah to join them against the Assyrians. Ahaz and the people of Judah are afraid. Notice verse 2. In the last part of verse 2, actually all of verse 2, when the, the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz, and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. You go outside today on this nice, beautiful, windy day, you understand what that looks like. 
And then in verses 3 through 6, the Lord commissions Isaiah to, to go to Ahaz, to meet Ahaz, and, and tell him not to be afraid. Don't be afraid. E- even though they plan to conquer Judah and set up their king in his place. And then in 7 through 9, the Lord declares that their plan will not come to pass. Judah must simply trust God. Rather than trusting in the protection from another nation, he is to put his trust and confidence in God and his promises. The end of verse 9. Notice verse 9. The end of verse 9. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. You won't stand. You won't stand if you are not firm in faith. God then speaks to Ahaz, tells him to give him a sign. So that Ahaz will know that Syria and Israel will not be successful. He, he, he doesn't want to. Now you put the Lord to the test. But God gives him a sign anyway. And now the familiar verse in 714. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. A child being born will be called Emmanuel. Is the sign for God's people that God's promise will stand. God will rescue his people because God is with his people. God's promise will stand. No need to be afraid. As the passage continues, we see that it finds an immediate fulfillment in the time of Ahaz. The sign of Emmanuel. God is with us. Assyria will be destroyed, will destroy the two nations who are, who are seeking to destroy them, right? Assyria will destroy these two nations that are trying to attack Judah. But the people of, Israel, of Assyria, whom Judah had been placing their trust in, would eventually make their way to Judah in chapter 8. So look with me now at chapter 8, 7 and 8. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. And it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. O Emmanuel. Verses 9 and 10. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered, Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Verse 10, take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. That's what Emmanuel means. God is with us. God with us. The sign of a child, Emmanuel, means that they don't need to fear those around them. But it also means that if they refuse to trust in God and leave God out of the equation of their lives and their decisions and their planning because of fear, they will fall. God's presence must be accounted for in the decisions that, we, that they were to make, that we are to make. Ahaz trusted in, trusted in something else other than God, Assyria. And he would soon discover that God with us will bring the very thing he was trusting in against him. 
this passage of a promise of Emmanuel, finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Right? We, 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 we know the story. Matthew 1, 20 through 23, we read this. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus alone ultimately fulfills God's promise of Emmanuel, of of God with us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came. Our Emmanuel came to deliver us from sin and death through his sacrificial death on the cross. So that one day, when Christ returns, we will dwell with him forever. Right? We will be in God's presence forever. Now, uh, if you have a, take a moment, think about this. What was there initially in the Garden of Eden? God dwelling with his people. You could trace this theme through the Bible. God dwelling with his people. God is with us. Adam and Eve, but then they sinned, and God cast them out, and Jesus comes. Now, we see pointers to this, preparing us for this, the tabernacle, God dwelling with his people of Israel, the temple, God dwelling among his people, with his people in Israel, and then Jesus comes, God dwelling with his people so that one day, through his death and resurrection, those who trust in him will dwell with him forever. Second, second, we see here the promise, let's consider now the promise of a shepherd king from Bethlehem. So turn your Bibles now to Micah 5. Okay, Micah 5, it's page 778 in the Pew Bible. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Micah 5, 778 in the Pew Bible. So in the, in the, in the context of Micah, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the, the prophet Micah, but he was a contemporary of Isaiah. Right? So living around the same time as, as Isaiah. He wrote during the time of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah around 730 to 700 B.C., as we know from the context, and we know from Judah, within Judah at that time, and learning from Isaiah as well, Assyria captured Israel in 722 B.C. These northern kingdoms were taken into captivity. They were exiled from their land. And Micah is in Judah. The Assyrians are now on the doorstep of Jerusalem. And that's what we see in verse 1. The enemy is coming. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. The, the Assyrian army is encamped outside the gates. It must have seemed like a joke 
for them to say, for him to say, muster the troops. It almost sounds like a, like a taunt, a, a challenge given to Judah. See what you can accomplish. See what type of defense you can set up. When you put matters into your own hands and rely upon your own strength, what good is it? That's the, the idea. It's interesting to note that Micah identifies himself in this group. Siege is laid against us. And I would just note that those who are faithful, those who were faithful, were not immune from the suffering that was about to come upon Judah. They would also experience the earthly consequences of God's people as a whole turning away from the Lord. We see here that with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. In other words, the enemy will even strike the king of Judah, who is ruling and reigning over the nation at that time. The king is completely defenseless, so much that he can be humiliated, he can be slapped on the cheek. And if the king is defenseless, you know this is the story of kings, if a king is defenseless, how much more for the people? That's the context. Things will get worse before they get better. We realize this even for us as Christians, as we await for the return of Jesus Christ, we, we realize that God does not promise us that things will go well for us, that, that we won't go through times of difficulty, trials, challenges, struggles, tribulations. We will before Christ returns. Our hope ultimately is not in our circumstances improving, but in Christ and in his arrival. In a similar way, that's the background for the familiar prophecy in verses 2 through 4. The prophecy that's given in 2 through 4 finds, again, its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The prophets expected and longed for the deliverance that God would bring through a ruler. And that's what we see in verses 2 through 4, really 2 through 5a. We're introduced to the place where the Messiah would come, right, in Bethlehem. Notice verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. This ruler will come from the little town of Bethlehem. No need to worry, no need to be afraid of the enemy, even though Jerusalem is under siege, because a ruler is coming from Bethlehem. The little town of Bethlehem, this small, insignificant village in Judah, not even listed with the cities that are allotted to, to Judah in Joshua 15, when God's people inherited the promised land. It's not even mentioned. It's too insignificant. It's like saying this, no need to be afraid, Washington, D.C., even though under siege. 
Someone from Ralston, Iowa is coming to save the day. We're the only, we're the, really the only ones in the world that know Ralston, right? And those who live in Ralston and surrounding areas. I did not know Ralston, Iowa, even though living in Iowa my whole life, moving to Louisville, I was not familiar with Ralston, Iowa. But we know that from the little town of Bethlehem, now think about this, from this little town of Bethlehem came this shepherd, Right? Bethlehem, oh, that seems like it would be all over the place in the Bible. It's because we know the Christmas story. We sing, O little town of Bethlehem. We, we, we're familiar with the story so well. This place was insignificant. It had no value, no meaning, nothing. But we know it. Why? Because this shepherd boy came from Bethlehem that God chose to be king over Israel, King David. Samuel goes down the list. You recall when they first were looking for the next king, right? Samuel, who is the king that God has anointed? Samuel goes to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, goes down the list of his sons. All right, it's not this one, it's not this one, it's not this one, it's not this one, it's not this one. Well, do you have any more? Because none of them. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have, I have one more. He, he, he's with the sheep. He's keeping the sheep. David becomes the king, the shepherd king of Israel. Now, we're not surprised by this. We shouldn't be surprised by this. God often uses surprising, unlikely people and means the most unlikely places to accomplish his purposes so that his power would be put on display. That's God doing this. No human could figure that one out. That must be God and God alone. A ruler is coming from Bethlehem who is David's greater son to whom the promise given to David in 2 Samuel 7 would be fulfilled, who would rule and reign over all. This is Jesus, the Messiah. In Luke 1, we read this. And the angel said to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and it will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Of his kingdom there will be no end. Notice what we learn about Christ in verses 4 and 5 of, of Micah 5. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. He is the shepherd king. He will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. 
He is going to protect his sheep from wolves. He's going to defend his sheep, fight for his sheep, feed his sheep, care for his sheep, know his sheep, and ultimately he is going to lay down his life for his sheep. And that's what Jesus would accomplish and accomplished for us and our salvation. As the shepherd king, as a greater David, he will rule and reign forever. And this is good news. This is good news for those who trust in him because his people will dwell secure and he will be their peace. He gives them safety and security. The promises were made. The one whom the prophets waited for, expected, longed for, prepared for is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the shepherd king from Bethlehem who rules over all. He is the one we are waiting for, and he is worth waiting for. Are you preparing for his arrival? Are you waiting on the Lord? As we think about these questions, we rightly ask, how? How do we prepare for the arrival of Christ? This is my final point. Three ways. There's many more. Three ways. I think in threes, if you haven't noticed that. Number one, we prepare and wait for the arrival of Christ by trusting in his presence, provision, and care. From both prophetic passages, what we learn is that Israel was relying upon their own strength. They were trusting in their own wisdom. When they had no answer, no solution, they were afraid. In fact, immediately after the passage, you can go home and read this, immediately after the passage of Emmanuel in in Isaiah 8, the Lord gives a firm warning to not follow in the way of the people and specifically to not fear what they fear. In other words, we can have a tendency to live in fear when we don't take God into consideration. Or we start living as though God is not in charge and then we're filled with fear. Don't be afraid of the things that everyone else in our culture is afraid of. Don't live your life in fear of what others fear. When things go wrong, we can be overwhelmed and worried and then act out of our anxiety. Have you ever noticed this? Things go wrong. Now I get anxious. Now I get, I, I, I get fearful. I get overwhelmed. And then I act because of that. That's what Judah was doing. Instead, as Isaiah continued, what we are called to do is trust God. Fear him. Set him apart as Holy. Acknowledge him as your Lord, as the Lord in all areas of your life, because he is the Lord. He is the Lord over all. We need to acknowledge this. 
That he needs to be, we want him to be Lord over our lives, to be central. He must be central in our thoughts, actions, decisions. If you regard him as holy, Isaiah continues, if you regard him as holy, he will be your sanctuary. He will be your strength. He will be your place of safety and security. But if you don't, He's not changing. If you don't, you will stumble and fall over this stone. Two options. He's either your sanctuary, your place of safety and refuge, or you'll stumble over him and fall. Jesus is our shepherd king who leads us and cares for us, and he will be our peace if we would trust in him. We should acknowledge that his presence is always with us, and he can be trusted in troubling times. If you're going through something hard, when you go through something hard, he can be trusted. He's with you because Jesus himself actually went through it as well. We should acknowledge that he is a great shepherd who laid down his life for us, so that by faith in him, we can have peace with God and dwell securely in his presence forever. This Advent season, trust in God's presence and provision and care. Number two, so we trust him, faith. Number two, we prepare for the arrival of the Lord by being a people characterized by repentance, in which we acknowledge our own unworthiness. And, our, and confess our need for him. Though, though I, only focused, I only focused on two prophets this morning, really, Isaiah and Micah, we recognize that the prophets as a whole prepared the people for Christ, right? By calling people to repentance. We saw this in Malachi, throughout our whole series in Malachi. We see this in John the Baptist, who is considered the last of the prophets before the arrival of Jesus. What was John the Baptist's message? As he prepared, right, he's called to prepare the way for the Lord. Well, what's his message? Matthew 3, 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's his message. To repent of our sins is to change direction, to turn around, right? You're heading in one direction, change of thoughts, I'm changing, going the other direction. It means to to reorient your life toward God. As believers, we should continue to do this in our daily lives. We should turn away from our sins and turn to God. Constantly, constantly, constantly. As we await the second coming of Christ and even celebrate the first coming of Christ, what we should do then is examine in our own lives areas in which we're sinning and falling short of God's glory. Pray and ask the Lord to make known to you areas in your life where you need to repent. Advent is an opportunity to consider, to ponder, to think about what God has done for us in Christ. When we truly think about God sending his son Jesus in order to die for sinners, it should move us to brokenness. I would really contemplate this reality. Not just mentally, right? Mental assent, 
but when we actually let it sink in deep into our souls, God sent his son, whom he was with for all eternity, to put on human flesh, to dwell among a sinful people, in order to die for those sinful people, should lead to brokenness. Humility, gratitude, and repentance. Let's make Advent a time of reflection and repentance. Number three, and lastly, we prepare for the arrival of the Lord by seeking to know Christ in the present. Seek to know Christ in the present. Seek to know him more each day. Listen to these words from 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. What did the prophets do? The prophets spoke about and searched for the salvation and grace that has come to us in Christ. They set out to understand God's word and the promises that he made concerning Jesus. They were like, I've described this before, they were like investigative reporters. Probing, asking questions, searching, trying to put all the data together regarding the person and circumstances surrounding Christ and the sufferings and glory that would follow. They would have searched earlier scriptures. They sought after the salvation and grace that would come to us in Christ. And as we stand on this side of the cross, living in the age of fulfillment of these promises given to the prophets, we still await the second coming of Christ. Now what I don't mean is this. I don't mean... Don't get out your charts and graphs to figure out when Jesus is returning. Like, that's not what we're getting at here. Instead, what we are to do in preparing for the arrival of Jesus, in seeking to know him, is know and understand the gospel. Seek to know the good news of Christ's death and resurrection for you and the implications of what that means in your daily life. Seek to know Christ. Devote yourself to him this Advent season. Reflect upon why Christ came to earth. As we prepare for Christmas and reflect upon and wait for the arrival of the Lord, might the value of Christ increase in our lives while we wait. And might our waiting be marked by hope and confidence as we trust in God's provision and care. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what the prophets taught us concerning the arrival of Jesus. He's Emmanuel, God with us. It's good news. It's great news for those who trust in him. We're reminded that he is our shepherd king who rules and reigns over all. He is our peace, our safety, our security, our our place of refuge. He is our strength. 
this Advent season, we do ask that you would enable us to reflect upon these truths. Help us draw near to Jesus. Help us ponder what he has done for us ultimately on the cross. Help us realize that you are with us, that he is with us, no matter where we go, no matter what we do. He cares for us, loves us, and leads us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.